listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. Luke chapter number three is where we're going to be today, picking up where we left off last week. Now, how many of you have ever bought a precious stone in the audience? You ever bought a precious stone, several of you? All you guys that are married ought to raise your hand. You bought, I'm sure, at some point. You didn't just find your engagement ring. I hope you didn't find. So when it was time for me to purchase a precious stone, I was still in college, and maybe I've told you this story before. If I've told it to you before, well, then hold on. I'm going to tell it to you again because I like telling this story. So I had finagled and worked it out where Stacy Jarrett was, I was thinking, was going to be willing to accept a marriage proposal. Okay? So I'm getting all my ducks in a row. Well, actually, I was getting all my drums in a row because At that time, the only thing that I personally owned outright just mine was a set of cherry red Yamaha recording series nine-piece drum set that I had purchased from a guy going to the mission field. And if you hear in my voice, oh, I would would love to be able to buy those drums back, okay, because they were really, they're really good. But that's the only thing I owned to my name. So I went and I started looking for someone to buy my drums. And my uncle, who was a much better drummer, was playing at his church. And I called him and I said, Uncle Wayne, you know anybody who might be interested in buying a set of drums? He said, yeah, I'd I'd be interested in buying a set of drums. What you got? And I told him what I had. And he says, how much do you want for them? And I said, well, I'll sell them to you for what we paid for them which was dumb because the guy who sold them to us lowballed it, okay, because he was going on the mission field. He just needed cash. But I sold them to my uncle for the price that, that was paid for them, and I had an amount of money in my hand for which to go find a precious stone to give to Stacy Jarrett to see if she would say yes. And it wasn't a large amount of money, so I had to be real cautious And so I went to a jeweler there in Lynchburg that was recommended to me, and I said, look, I don't have a lot of money, but I'm ready to get engaged, and I need to get the most bang for my buck here. So what I need you to do is tell me what I need to be looking for. And he spent a gracious amount of time. This fellow was a believer. I'm pretty sure he was a believer because that's how I got sent to him. And he explained to me all about cut carrot and clarity they said now mr clark you have a little bit of say so with cut in your price range you don't have a whole lot of say so in the realm of carrot in your price range but let me talk to you about clarity He says, because what I find in those that really appreciate what was given to them, that a a woman who is not flashy, look at me, I want everyone to see me. Is that your hopeful fiancé? I said, no, that's me. I want everybody. (laughs) That's, 
That's what I do. No, it, honestly, it is. But anyway, no, that's not her at all. And he says, okay. So what you're saying is she appreciates things. And I went, yeah, she's kind of, she's the low-key appreciate, you know, behind the scene. He goes, okay, let's talk about clarity. He said, when you're picking out a stone, clarity equals quality. So what you want is a high grade of quality, even though it may reduce the size, the clarity increases the value. And I said, okay, explain that to me one more time because I'm going to have to explain that to her. And I want to make sure she understands just how high you see clarity because I'm going to need to explain that to her. And he did. And we found a cut and I bought a diamond because of its clarity, because of its quality. And they determine quality by looking at this stone and determining how pure it is. So that then you can put, and I have like somewhere in my stuff, I've got that geological stamp of approval that the paperwork that says this is what this is so that if anyone you know so I could give it to my wife and say if anyone ever makes fun of your engagement ring here show them this and I don't know what it'll make you feel better I don't but the bottom line is I bought that stone because of its quality What Luke is doing as he's beginning to introduce the ministry of Jesus is he is showing for his reading audience the quality of the one, the clarity of the one, the purity of the one who he is going to put forward as Messiah, as the chosen one, as the one who has been sent on behalf of God to address all that has been broken because of sin. And so Luke is, is, he's painting the portrait, if you will, of Jesus. And he's showing the quality. Last week, Luke began his demonstration of the quality of this one who we will call the Christ, Messiah. And he showed that or defended that quality through a heavenly endorsement at the baptism of Jesus, as Jesus had come to the Jordan where John was preaching a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Get your heart right because the kingdom of God is near and the king of that kingdom is coming. And Jesus the king of that kingdom, the Messiah that had been promised, came to the Jordan and entered the water to be baptized by John. And rightly, John says, wait, not in this passage, but in the other passage in Matthew, he says, wait, 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 wait. I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. What are you doing in the water? Why are you coming? You don't need to repent. And we argued last week that Jesus entered that water so that he might stand in in solidarity with the message of God through the prophet John and so that he might identify himself with the need of repentance of all the others who had stepped in that water. Him, 
himself not needing repentance, but identifying with all of those who do. As Jesus was baptized and brought up out of the water, Luke says, as he was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove and rested on Jesus. And a voice from heaven says this, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Luke presents Jesus as a qualified servant of God, as a qualified Messiah, because God says so. I can have all the geological paperwork I want, but it's only the opinion of one who looks through a magnifying glass to determine what they think. But when God says, that's him, well, that's him. But Luke, I think, didn't want to leave it there. Because there would be some that might would argue whether or not that, did that really happen? Okay, Luke, I know you're saying that the God of heaven spoke and that the God of creation endorsed him. But surely there's more. And I think what Luke is doing here in chapter 3 and the first part of chapter 4 is saying, I'm glad you asked. Because I'm not done qualifying this one. In the passage that we will look at today, what seems to be a large passage, Luke's gospel chapter 3, verse 23, all the way through chapter 4, verse 15. But I'll go ahead and let you know we're not going to read all of that because it's not necessary that we read all that. You can on your time. Luke is going to say not only is he qualified through heaven's endorsement, this one Jesus has a qualified pedigree, and this one Jesus has a qualified purity in and of himself. So if the endorsement of God that that John heard and many others, if that's not enough, then I want to shore up the argument for you to show you he is qualified even of himself. First, a qualified pedigree. So what Luke does beginning in verse number 23, uh, chapter 3, verse 23, is he begins the genealogy of Jesus. You know, there's another genealogy in the four Gospels, the other one found in Matthew. And so we say, okay, well, they must be the same genealogy because they're talking about the same guy. But if you read both Gospels, you'll discover, wait a minute, there are some similar names in Luke's and Matthew's genealogy, but there are more names that are different And there's some other characteristics about these genealogies that are different. So let me just give you some of four differences between Luke's genealogy of Jesus and Matthew's. Number one, it's a different location. Matthew begins his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus, whom he will be speaking about and painting a picture of. Luke, however, uses it into his story, you see, after the baptism account. 
There's a different order in the two genealogies. Matthew moves from the past to the present. So Matthew goes back as far as he's going to go, and then he tells the genealogy moving toward the present. Luke does the opposite. Luke starts from the present and moves toward the past. They're different as far as length is concerned. Matthew, in his genealogy, goes from Jesus to Abraham, and that's where he stops. Luke, however, starts with Jesus and goes all the way back to the first man, Adam. So they're different in location and order and length. But lastly is the most confusing, and I've already alluded to it. They're different in their listing, meaning they have different names. Well, what's going on here? What you'll discover is that the closer you are to Abraham is where they begin to, or the closer you are to David going in the past is where they will begin to be the same. But from the present where Jesus resides, they seem to be following a different path. Some of you are are enamored with Ancestry.com. Anybody paid the fee and done that? Jumped up? Come on, Amanda, raise your hand. Or raise your hand for Eugene. Eugene loves it. I love listening to him talk about it too. Or, or, or the others, the, the, what is it, 23andMe and all that. So why do we do that? Because we're interested in our past. We're interested in who we're connected to. And, and you know what sometimes you find on Ancestry.com? or on these other sites, you discover you're not who you thought you were. You discover that Mama had it wrong. She's telling you something, and maybe she knew what she was telling you was wrong to help save your little heart, or maybe she didn't know, and she was just telling you what she'd been told. But you know what? DNA don't lie, does it? And you start following that back, and you discover, wow, I didn't know who I thought I was. Or maybe you go, hey, I had no idea who I was. Because, you know, you were related to George Washington, right? Right? Queen England, somebody you're related to, and you're waiting on the check. What you don't have here in these two genealogies is a contradiction. But if you look at it on face value, you start very quickly saying, wait a minute. Jesus, Joseph, and then another father. Well, Joseph didn't have two daddies. Joseph didn't have two different granddaddies. Joseph didn't have two different great-granddaddies from the... I'm not talking about paternal-maternal. Don't, don't, don't confuse that. He, he didn't have two in the same line. So what's happening here? Well, there's some, there's some answers to that. And I think some of them are helpful and some of them are not so helpful for, for me at least. But here's what I think is happening and I'll share this with you. The differences in their listing seem to be the purpose for which they are writing. Now, let's, let's even back up a little bit further. And let's say this, we have how many Gospels in the New Testament? I'll give you a hint. Four. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. 
If you've ever watched Sesame Street, you've seen the little thing, the four boxes, and the little song, which one of these kids is doing his own thing. They got three kids jumping on a pogo stick and one kid picking his nose. It's real obvious. That kid in the bottom right corner is doing his own thing. John, not picking his nose, John, doing his own thing. So we're going to set him aside. That is an authentic gospel inspired by God, but John's doing his own thing. Matthew, Mark, Luke look a lot alike. Those are called the synoptic gospels because they have a lot of the same material. They have a lot of sometimes word-for-word information. Well, how did that work? Did they sit around a table and did they hash it out? No, they were written at different times. And it seems as though Mark is the oldest. Mark's gospel seems to be the oldest. And it seems that both Luke and Matthew had access to Mark's gospel. That's why you'll see parallel passages that are in Mark and Luke and in Matthew. But what about the things that are in Matthew and Luke that aren't in Mark? Well, the simple answer is that Matthew and Luke had access to other oral and written documents about Jesus from which they had to pull from. It seems as though Matthew's gospel came after Mark, and Matthew ordered those events and those stories for a purpose to a Jewish audience. That's why Matthew's genealogy goes back to Abraham. Because Matthew is interested in speaking to an audience made up primarily of Jews. Whereas Luke is writing to a Gentile audience. And it seems Luke is taking his stories and these documents and these accounts, which we've already read in the first chapter, the first four verses, that he took great pain. He went to great lengths to authenticate that these accounts were true, and then he ordered them in a way so that it would paint the picture of Jesus that he intended, or should we say that the Holy Spirit intended, for a Gentile audience. And so Luke's gospel seems to go through the son of David by the name of Nathan, While Matthew seems to go through the son of David through Solomon. So how does that work? It seems that Matthew follows Joseph's line through Solomon. You say, well, wait a minute. Jesus wasn't Joseph's son. I know that. But for the Hebrew, when Joseph's marriage to Mary became solidified... After the birth of Jesus, Jesus, even though to the public was seen to be born out of wedlock, Jesus became Joseph's son from a legal standpoint. If he chose to go ahead and marry Mary, Mary, say that fast five times, then he was taking the responsibility of her son born prior to their marriage. And so, therefore, Matthew is following the legal line through Solomon. It seems that Luke is following the royal line. You say, what's different between royal and legal? Royal requires DNA. 
Royal requires blood. And who did Jesus get his DNA from? Not Joseph, but he certainly got it from Mary. I think the most plausible explanation is that in Luke's genealogy, starting in verse number 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son of as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. It seems as though what Luke is doing is connecting because there are no women in Luke's line. There are in Matthew's, but there are none in Luke's. It seems that Luke is going to follow Mary's line through Joseph, who either was adopted by Mary's father, or possibly Mary was an only child, and so therefore her inheritance from her father went from her to Jesus directly, but Joseph is the male in this list. It seems that Luke is following the royal line through Nathan. You say, what's the big deal about getting back to David? The big deal is this. God promised Messiah to be qualified as a descendant of David. And what we discover in the Gospels, if you're reading Matthew, he goes all the way back to Solomon through Joseph, who wasn't his biological father, but according to the laws and customs of the Jews, Jesus fit the bill. And if you go over here to Luke, he says he goes all the way back through the son that didn't become king, but he also didn't mess it up for Israel, Nathan, the younger son of David, through whom the promise could also extend. Bottom line is Jesus had the pedigree. If, if, if God's spoken word out of heaven with the accompaniment of the Holy Spirit is not enough for you, well then know that he's at least qualified in his pedigree. He gets back to David to receive the promise that we all know is coming through one of his kids. Jesus is qualified. Matthew says through his adopted father. Luke, I believe, says through his mother. There's a practical observation. Because you go, okay, genealogy. Now what? Well, It's just information about Jesus, not a lot to apply about a genealogy, but I do think there's a practical observation that I want to show you, something that I want you to see, and that is this. Even Jesus had good and bad in his family history. You say, he did? Well, yeah, he had Abraham, he had had David, he had... Boaz, I mean, he, he had some really big names in his pedigree, but he also had some other guys that weren't so good, one of which I will just name out of verse number 33. You don't have it in the, uh, on the screen, but in verse 33, we hear of the son of Perez, the son of Judah, and you go, well, well what's that? Well, Judah 
had an illicit affair with someone he thought was a prostitute but was actually his daughter-in-law that he had done wrong who dressed herself as a prostitute so that she might woo her father-in-law into an evening of passion and from that came Perez. Well, if that ain't a scandal, I don't know what is. But you know who's in line? Jesus. You see, Jesus had big names and small names, good names and bad names. And here's, here's the kicker. None of those names made Jesus any better, and none of those names defined Jesus any worse. When we read these genealogies, it's a reminder to us that those folks in your past, those folks that you come from, they don't define you. They don't determine what and who you are. They are a part of your story nonetheless, but they don't define you. They don't decide for you what God says. God calls the broken. And Jesus came for us all. I think Luke went beyond Abraham in order to show Theophilus and all the others that will read this gospel and see this picture of a qualified Messiah to know, look, he's not just the Messiah for the Jews because he goes all the way back to Adam. Verse 38, the son of Enos the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. I believe to say, y'all, he's qualified by what the Jewish law expected, but he's connected to every one of us. He's a qualified savior because of his pedigree for everybody. He's not just qualified in an earthly fashion. He's also qualified in his purity. This is where God has said from heaven what God has said. His lineage has defined him according to just where he was born. But they say about the proof, it being in the pudding, I'm not really sure what that saying means, but I hear it a lot. Basically, Jesus, you've, you've got the credentials, but now will you put them to practice for us all to see and hear? If you've ever spent any time in a high school chemistry room, then you've probably done an experiment with a little piece of paper called a litmus test a litmus test there's there's a, a material on the paper called litmus and and you put the the paper down in the liquid and if that liquid is acidic meaning it is a an acid then typically that paper will come out what color chemistry students typically red showing that there's acid in the solution if the solution is a base, you put the paper down in the solution, meaning that it's not acidic. You pull it out, 
And typically, we'll see if you get this one right. Typically, you pull that out, and what color is it? Not red, but Democrat. Blue. No, I just, it's blue. I don't know. That was spontaneous and, and unhelpful and unprofitable. I apologize. So you pull it out. It's blue. What Jesus is about to do is to demonstrate a litmus test. Hey, we, we've said this about you. We've conferred this upon you. But now here's your chance to prove with visible evidence if you qualify to be Messiah. Verse verse number one, chapter number four. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. I just want to clarify. Jesus did not get filled with the Spirit because of this great worship service at the Jordan. I'm ready and I'm foot. That's not what he's talking about. Remember, let's go back to Ephesians. We've already studied this. When Jesus, through Paul, said, don't be drunk with wine, but be, say it, filled with the Spirit. He's not telling us to have some ecstatic experience. He's telling us to give the reins of our life to the Holy Spirit. You be full of the Spirit by giving Him control of you. Meaning, you're not driving you anymore. You're letting God determine the course of your life. That's what Jesus did. Of course, we know Jesus not only is born in flesh, but He's also God the Son. But in practicality here, we learn that Jesus gave the reins of his life to the control of the spirit that indwelt him in a similar way in which he indwells us. So Jesus, being under the control of the Holy Spirit, allowing God the Holy Spirit to dictate his goings and comings, the Spirit led him into the wilderness. Verse 2 says, For forty days... Being tempted by the devil. This word devil, it just simply means the accuser, the embodiment of evil, the adversary. To be tempted by the devil and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. One of the writers that I read behind says, I want you to notice something. Luke has ended with the fact that Adam was the lowercase son of God, meaning that he was created by God. In in the same way that we can say, realistically, we are all children of God in that we were created by God. But that's where that children of God statement ends. We were just made by him and we all possess his image. But true children of God are those that are His by faith. And that statement would not be true for the entire world. The entire world is not all children of God, only those who are born and adopted into His family by faith. And so when Luke says Adam was a lowercase son of God created by God, Jesus also is the Son of God. Capital S. Only begotten, uniquely distinct 
but completely connected to his Father and the Spirit as the second person of the Godhead. This author says, I want you to imagine the scene that Luke is setting up. And imagine the environment in which the first Adam was given the opportunity to face the challenges of the tempter. The first Adam was in the luscious Garden of Eden, in a place where all of his needs could be met with a woman made for him. And they were given the opportunity to have the run of the place with one exception, the one tree. This writer says, now think about Jesus, the second Adam, to face the same enemy, but in a much different environment, parched, dry, hot, starving. The Bible says Jesus was hungry. Some of you right now have already felt the rumble in your belly. And you're hoping that your neighbor not related to you did not hear it. And if they did, that they would think it was your child or your spouse. But can I tell you, you ain't hungry like Jesus was hungry. Jesus was at the end of physical ability. Starved for 40 days. By the will of God who led him there. Luke paints that picture on purpose. You see, he's already said a whole bunch about Jesus. He, he's, already, he's already put Jesus on a pedestal. He's got the approval of heaven. He's got the, he, he's got the pedigree for it. He, he's Messiah, but I want him to show you. And so he's painting the picture bleak. The Bible says, when that time of 40 days was ended, he was hungry. Verse 2 says, the devil said to him, three temptations. Probably not three total. The devil probably messed with Jesus the whole 40 days. He, he's, probably, he's probably throwing everything he's got at him from day 1 to day 40. But these seem to be a summary of everything that Satan had been saying. And, and we see it in three specific temptations. The first one has to do with God's provision. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God. Well, that's exactly what Luke is doing. He's saying, if he's the son of God, he's going to pass this test. And it's going to not be strike three but it's going to be the hat trick. You know, the third goal is when everybody throws their hat on the ice. It's going to be lights out, we're done, no more qualifying. He says, if you are the Son of God, Jesus, I just want to give you a chance to prove who you are, devil says. Command this stone to become bread. You see, this temptation had to do with God's provision. In essence, Satan was saying to Jesus, I tell you, buddy, 
It's a shame God brought you out here to starve you. You would think you of all people he would take care of, but obviously God doesn't really care about you because he's not provided for you. I, I remember about one of your prophets. You remember Elijah? He was hungry. God brought ravens to feed him, a little old lady with some meal and some oil, and he took care of his prophets. But man, looks like God's forgot about you, big guy. But I tell you what. Let's just go ahead and prove who you are. There's a stone. If you're the son of God, I know you are. But let's prove it for everybody else. Turn that stone into bread because I know you're famished. Jesus, do for yourself what God has not done for you like you think he should. Jesus said, it is written, verse 4, man shall not live by bread alone. That passage in Deuteronomy 8, 3, Moses was talking to a people in a desert place who had been fed by the bread of God found on the ground every morning, but not dirty. No three-second rule in the desert because God put it on the ground and left it there for them to pick up and take home and eat. And Moses wanted to remind the people, your relationship with God ain't about that bread. Your relationship with God has to do with what he says. Because there are going to be days that bread ain't there. And you're going to be wondering if God has forgotten you and you got to remember what God has said. And Jesus says, yeah, I'm hungry. But man doesn't live by bread alone. God the Father has not forgotten me. God has sent me on a mission and I'm going to be loyal to him. And I'm not going to need the opportunity to prove to you who I am. So thank you. No, God's word says otherwise. Well, shoot. Let's try again. Temptation number two having to do with God's plan. Verse number five. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. So it seems as though Satan did sort of a little visual demonstration showing him all of the kingdoms of the world. Basically saying, Jesus, you're so interested in all these people. You went to all this trouble to put on flesh. And I know you're hungry. And I know you're tired. And I know you're frustrated. And I know folks have talked about you all your life. It seems to me you're going through a whole lot of trouble for all these folks over which I've been given authority. And you know I have. Your daddy gave it to me. Let's do this. Verse number six, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it's been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it all will be yours. Here it is, Jesus. All this that you're so interested in. All these folks, and I don't know why you're interested in them. But they're right now under my authority by God's command. Let's just make a deal. They can be yours today. 
And you can avoid all that you look forward to. I don't get God's plan for you, but I've been hearing folks talk about it. I've been hearing people write about it for a very long time. We can avoid all of that unnecessary suffering. I give it to you today. All you need to do is just bow the knee to me. So I don't even think Satan was saying, be my follower. I think he was just saying, just go down, tap it one time. Just nobody looking but me and you. Just go down, just tap it and right back up. And I'll let you have it all. We can end this thing today. Jesus answered him, well, Satan, you know, it's written, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You know, you, you, you make a good point, Satan. I am interested in all these folks. That's why I'm here. So I'll give you that. But even if I could worship you, I would not. Because the word of God says, only him will you worship and serve. And you're right. This is going to be a hard journey. But it's a journey that ends in glory. The journey you're talking about is the is the happiness for a moment but it is on is it truly happy but an eternity of ruin no i'm going to remain true to my father to our word <clears throat> thought i had you there okay well let's let's try another one verse number nine here he's going to tempt him with god's ability he took him to Jerusalem and set him up on the pinnacle of the temple. Uh, most authors looking through the lens of Josephus, a Jewish historian, said that it's probably the southeastern corner of the temple that overlooked the Kidron Valley. It was right there on the edge of the wall and looked straight down through the Kidron Valley, which, interestingly enough, Jesus would be able to pass on the night of his betrayal to go pray up on the Mount of Olives. But it's said that from top to bottom was 450 feet. Josephus said that when folks would look over that pinnacle, they would get dizzy. Those of you who are afraid of heights are, are not imagining that right now. Because it does the same thing to you. It's what makes it where you can't look over the edge of the high thing because it makes you a little queasy in your stomach. I'm one of those with you. It seems as though Satan has taken Jesus now and is up there to that point that everybody knows about, that high point in the city, city, the pinnacle of the temple. And he says again, if you are the Son of God, well, throw yourself down. Because Jesus, it is written, and now Satan begins to quote from the Psalms. And, and he has some pretty good theology in that he's quoting Psalm 91, which is a psalm written about Messiah. He says, he, talking about God, will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. 
He starts off with good theology and then tanks it. Why? Because he's tempting Jesus to do something to force God's hand to prove who he was. You see, Jesus, if you jump from this point and you survive, everyone will know you're Messiah. And and if you're going to go through with everything and not worship me, at least you could have everyone on your side. Just jump down because God has said about you that he won't let anything happen to you apart from his plan. Prove it. Jesus says, well, Satan, that's where your theology just went in the toilet. What God says, I do. And I don't have to force his hand. Because in Deuteronomy 6.16, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You don't back God into a corner and expect God to dance to the beat of your drum or of your expectation. How many times have we been tempted to say, God, if you really love me, you're going to work this thing out. It's got to work out, God. But, But I know if you love me, you will. And you know that in a relationship, if you love me, you will. Never is correct. If you love them, you won't ask them till you will. You trust them. And Jesus said, don't work like that, Satan. I don't don't have to prove anything to anybody, but in his refusal, you know what he was doing? Putting himself down in the litmus and pulling it out and showing himself proving himself to be the exact opposite of the first Adam. The one who had everything going for him and yet failed in his obedience to his creator. And now Jesus having everything against him. Jesus having nothing to stand for himself. He set it aside for the purpose of becoming united with us with one exception, no sin. He proves that he can do in greater way what the first Adam failed to do in addressing our brokenness. Luke says, ta-da. Is he qualified? Yeah, God said he was. Is he qualified? Absolutely. His birth certificate shows it. Is he qualified? Just take a look. Oh, yes, he is. He's pure. He's righteous. He's holy. He's worthy to be your sacrifice and mine because that's what it's going to take, Theophilus, to redeem the broken as we. Jesus emerges as the pure and holy son of God, qualified as a righteous and holy Messiah. So we've got some practical instructions. Practical instructions. Number one, temptation, Christian, always sounds good and makes sense to you. When you're being tempted, you're not being tempted with something that doesn't sound good to you. I will never be tempted to eat a half a jar of mayonnaise. Why? Because a teaspoon of mayonnaise makes me gag. But if I can, for illustration, I can be very much tempted to eat a half a bag of Reese's Cups. Why? Because the temptation sounds good. 
It sounds right. And you know what we need to do? We need to learn the voice of the enemy. We need to learn to hear the voice of the enemy. And you know who he sounds like? You. He sounds like me. Cade and I, we like, we, we like to, to have fun with accents. Some of them are pretty good. Some of them don't even, aren't even close, but we're having fun. Satan sounds just like you. When he says, look, I know what God said, but it's 8 o'clock, and the thing has to happen at 10, and God ain't showed up. So, look, you must need to do this for him. Got David in trouble, got Abraham in trouble, all kinds of babies born that wasn't supposed to be born. You need to figure this out because God's forgotten you. Sounds just like you, sounds like a good idea. But if you filter it through God's word, you know that those who wait on the Lord renew their strength. Those who trust in the Lord don't go without. Temptations sound good. Makes sense to you. Number two, temptations are usually about making your own way a shortcut apart from God's way. If, if you're in God's Word, if you want to know what God has to say about the direction of your life, you can discover that here. But I'm telling you, we want to go all kinds of other shortcuts. I like a shortcut. I like to take one. Why? Because I don't, I don't like to be somewhere longer than I think I need to be there. So I'll take a shortcut. Sometimes I'll make my own shortcuts. Go in a way that says do not enter because nobody's watching and it's just around the corner. And that's what Satan does to us. He says, don't go the long way. Take this route. It's a whole lot easier. The problem with that is how much God uses the long way to build you and I into who he has called us to be. He's the God of the long way. God is the scenic route God. He's not in a hurry and you need the time with him. It's typically about shortcuts. Learn to listen to those and recognize those. And then last, temptations can be resisted through God's Word and by God's Spirit if you will be filled, as Ephesians said, giving the control of your life over to God and say, you drive, you know the way, I don't, and I'll try to take a shortcut. You drive, I'm riding with you. And you start putting the things that sound like you in your mind and heart, you start putting them in the hands of God, and you'll start hearing another voice. Now, not probably voices in your head. But the voice telling you truth that doesn't sound like what you want to do and what you think you ought to do, you know who that typically is if you're looking to Him? Him. So learn the way Satan sounds like you. Learn the way God don't sound like you, but will always lead you to where he wants you. Some of us are wrestling with temptations right now. Some, some of us are on the, just the edge. You know, he said, 
you're hungry, aren't you? I'm like, yeah, I am. I'm hungry. And I, I know God said he'd provide, but I guess he's forgotten. About. I guess he wants me to do. And we're right there on the edge of that cliff. What's Satan trying to do? He's trying to steal, kill, destroy. He's just trying to mess us up, get us off point. He's trying to lead us astray. But not if we get to that edge and go, well, you know what? Now, God wouldn't, God wouldn't have me figure this out for him now, would he? No. I'm just going to wait on him. Not saying don't do what God has said do, but getting there going, mm, uh, this feels like a shortcut. Mm. I'm just going to trust God. We resist him. What does James say? You resist, resist the devil, what will he do? Gone. You pull this thing out, you start telling the enemy what God has said, Satan will say, you jerk, I ain't got time for you. He'll leave you alone. He'll be back. He'll leave you alone. You find clarity. You're all going to face temptation. You're going to fail a lot of times. We serve a forgiving God. Hallelujah. It'll forgive. Amen. But wouldn't it be better to avoid some of the things instead of seek forgiveness? Yeah. Jesus has showed us the way. Resist through the word and the spirit. And look to the one who's qualified to lead us. Because he is. And he always will. Well, let's pray. Let's stand together. Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your son who is qualified. You said so. That's enough. But we thank you that you took the time through Luke to say, but I want you to see all of these other ways in which the one born of Mary Yep, the one they've been talking about all his life, the scandalous one. Well, he's the Savior. He's my choice. He's Messiah. He's the king of this kingdom. He's the one you're to listen to and follow. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that Jesus is pure and holy and untainted by sin. We are not. We needed him pure so that he was our sacrifice. So that he could take on our sin and give us his righteousness. We needed him. You gave him to us. And he willingly embraced us. Now, God, we face temptation as your followers, your children by faith. We need you to remind us as we see the work of Jesus resisting the enemy. Through your word and by your spirit, give us the courage to learn the voice of the enemy in our ear. Give us the wisdom to put your voice in our heart so that we might hear from you and follow you in times of temptation. God, we thank you for the opportunity to be together as a family. We pray for those that are hurting because they're sick. I think about Janie. I think about... uh, Pam and JC, homesick with, with uh, the coronavirus, others that, that have just slipped my mind. I think about John and, and, uh, and Wanda Faye as they're home, and, and, and God, they're just dealing with lots of physical stuff. I think about uh, family members that are helping, and they're tired. They would be a, it would be a fertile garden for the enemy. I pray that you would strengthen them, encourage them, remind them of your presence, 
God, I pray that you would use us, show us those encounters this week that you've called us to step into for your glory, for the cause of the gospel, for the encouragement of the brothers and sisters. Give us the willingness to take those steps in your name, through your call. God, help us today. We love you. We trust you. For in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen.